Good morning. My name is Brad. Uh, I am preaching today, and my first time doing a kids' lesson. I'm actually more nervous about this. Uh, thanks, Lucy. She's pumped up. Uh, I'm really more nervous about doing this than I am the sermon, so you're going to have to bear with me. Uh, Miss Kristen is going to pass out a little gift for you. Hey, Ruby, can you have a seat? Thank you. That's mine. She's, she likes attention like her dad. Um, if you, uh, you're, do you guys know what this is? A mirror. A mirror. A mirror. Exactly right. What is a mirror? What is a mirror used for? Anybody know? Yeah. What's a mirror used for? It's for looking at Yeah, you can look at something. What else can a mirror be used for? Say that. Say that one more time. Seeing yourself, right? You can also, at the right angle, you can uh, flash some light. Don't do that while I'm preaching, please. All right? You can, you can uh, reflect light. Yeah. A mirror is used to reflect an image. Okay? And in Colossians at the beginning, we read a passage that says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, we can know what God is like by looking at Jesus because He and the Father are one. Jesus is God. So, I'm giving you this mirror, and you can go home, you can decorate it. On the back, you can peel it off, you can stick it somewhere with your parents' permission in the house. Okay? Right, parents? With your permission. Yeah, we're going to stick ours on a paper, because don't, we don't mess up walls in our house. Yeah, that's right. So, what we're going... <laughs> it's a problem. Whoa. What I want you to do is I want this mirror to remind you of two important things. The first one that I want this to remind you of is the verse that's going to be on the screen. It's in Colossians 3, 23 through 24. It says, whatever you do, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when you start school in a few weeks, when you're loving and respecting your parents, when you're being a good friend, you can reflect what God is like. You can remember and you can show other people what God is like through your behavior, whatever you do. So that's number one. That's the first thing I want you to remember. The second thing is that when you look at it, that you remember that God loves you very much. He loves you more than you could ever imagine. And you were also made in His image. And that's very, very important. Okay? You guys got it? Yeah. Honor God in everything that you do. And God loves you very much. Can I pray for you guys? Can I pray for our kids? Yeah. My daughter said no. So we're... <laughs> All right, everybody else said yes, though. So I like it. All right, let's pray. pray quiet down, let's pray. God, we thank you for these kids. We thank you for the gift of being parents. And Lord, I just lift up these kids. I pray that we would help form them. May we live out what you're like to them as parents, that we would show them the love of Christ every day in our home. I pray for these kids as they start school and they move up to new experiences. I pray that you bless them and uh, help us to know what it's like to experience your presence in every way that we live. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, you guys can go back to your seats. I'm going to stay with you, Dad. No, so, honey, you can't stay with me.
Oh, man. Matt calls my daughter Showtime because she's always showing, you know. Pastor Matt does Showtime. So as these kids are going back, I want to I share a couple things with you uh, as, as kids are going back to their seats. Um, I uh, texted, uh, I don't know if you guys know Mike, he does our liturgy back here. And this week I texted him, I was like, hey, I know we got kids in the service. Um, I want to be like 20, 25 minutes in the sermon. And uh, I texted him back like a few days later, said, bro, I lied. I'm sorry. So I, it's going to be a little longer. I'm going to try to get through it as quickly as possible and respecting the fact that we have kids here. But we have a very challenging text. Actually, I, I've been joking with Pastor Eric and Pastor Matt for a while that I get the hardest text. They're either confusing and require a lot of study or they're controversial. And this one does not let us down at all. So if you have your Bibles today, we're going to finish our series in Colossians, and we're going to begin in Colossians 3.18. The sermon's going to cover through 4.18, but for the sake of time, we're only going to read 3.18 through 4.6. And if you are able, um, with your kids, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Hear the Word of the Lord. From Colossians 3, 18, 4 through 6, through 4, 6, excuse me. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with a sincere heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing from the Lord that you will receive the inheritance as a reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bond servants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I think um, passages like this in our culture, as, as our culture has progressed, Throughout time, we find these passages harder and harder to swallow, at least me personally, when seeing these texts that, that they use words like submission. Some of your versions may say subject. So, some of concepts of slavery or bond servants and masters, at face value, it can actually raise some doubts in us. Some doubts about the efficacy of Paul, the church, doctrines of scripture, and even the love of Jesus himself. And I kind of can understand this. This is actually what births this concept of deconstruction, which we've talked about over and over again. 
And I, I've, I've felt some of this even in my own life. I don't know what kind of church, if you grew up in church or if you didn't, but I grew up in a church context that took scriptures like this and weaponized it. The, it was, these passages were used to exact power over people, particularly women, and to, to assert power and, and dominance and dehumanize people. It, it was used for power in the home to show that a man should rule his house and a woman must wear certain types of clothing and have specific types of hair and have little voice, if any, in the home. That's what I grew up in. And so there's some stain there for me. There's some, there's some, some woundedness, I, I feel. Christianity is also stained in America because many of these passages, and, and some like it, have been used to support American slavery. In a 2018 Time Magazine article entitled, How Christian Slave Owners Used the Bible to Justify Slavery, a historian, Noel Ray, he takes excerpts from his book, The Great Stain, Witnessing American Slavery, and displays how scriptures were, were taken from the Bible to support the institution in America's early history. Ray cites Genesis 9, 18 through 27, which called slavery this, this curse of Ham, if you're familiar with that passage, where African slaves would be descendants of Ham, cursed by, by Noah to serve his brothers. Ray recalls Ephesians 6, 5 through 7, which is actually almost identical to the wording of the passage we just read in Colossians 3. For slaves and bond servants were to obey their masters in everything. These, along with other passages sprinkled throughout the Old Testament, the Bible actually became a way to exert power over people in a way that did not reflect the message of Scripture, and especially the message of Jesus that was applied by Paul. I say all this to you today, not to defend the Bible. I do not need to defend the Bible. It needs no defense, or as one of my old friends would say, the truth fears no challenge. But there is a real and present reality that we must acknowledge. We all have to acknowledge that the church in America and throughout the Western church's history, passages like these have been used to exert power over women and people of various ethnicities and cultures. And this is wrong. We have to acknowledge that. Ray, at at the end of this article, he cites Frederick Douglass. And I put this quote on the screen for you. Frederick Douglass said this, between the Christianity of this land, he's speaking about America, and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize the widest possible difference. So wide that to receive one as good, pure, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial, and hypocritical Christianity of this land. And I could see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Mic drop. You could walk away right there from that. The struggle for power, though, is nothing new. Like it has been a human thing. It's, it's embedded in every culture and in every civilization. So if I could, I want to take us back to kind of sixth grade social studies 
we're going to look at the social hierarchy in the time of Paul. So, yes, this is a graphic straight out of like middle school, right? It's kind of got that. It's even like the triangles are off a little bit. That's got to be authentic here. You see, during the, the time when Paul would have written this letter in Colossians, this would have been the social structure. If you notice, it's kind of like the idea of like a pyramid or pinnacle. There's a point. Whoever's, the further you go up top, the more power you have over those below you. Notice where women, slaves are. And then you have freedmen, because anything below the people who were free were those three categories. And this is actually reflected, take some time, Google search it if you want. Babylonian and Egyptian ancient civilizations were also modeled this way. The rulers at the top had all the power over the vast majority. Human kingdoms have been set up this way throughout all humanity since the fall. The interesting thing that I would argue is that not much has actually changed. The difference between our American culture is that we have this pretty new concept of upward mobility where you can actually change your position based on your wealth, your success. And that's fairly new in human history. Like we, we use phrases like climbing the ladder, growing in influence, right? Instagram, social media, growing in our influence, promotions. They're all embedded into our culture and society. All of which is a means of us trying to grow in power over ourselves and others. All of our systems, structures, and poli- policies and cultural practices are not only like shaped by them, they're actually formed intently through this model. Power over others. And the unfortunate thing is, is that the church in, in many contexts is no different. In, many, in recent history, we have podcasts talking about the rise and fall of churches and leaders. There are news stories. They've grown in their influence and power, church leaders, and they have come out as abusive, manipulative insulated in order to preserve their power over people and their positions. Arguably, the church in many contexts is no different from the world because it takes its power structure from it. It's very worldly, actually, in a lot of contexts. But the teaching of Jesus, and this is the whole point of why I'm saying all of this, Because when we look at this passage in Colossians, it's all going to flush out because this has to be abundantly clear. The teachings of Jesus are radically different than what is seen in our culture and in the culture of Paul's time in Rome and the Roman citizens and Greeks there. The kingdom of God is subversive. Actually, when Jesus was asked about greatness in the kingdom or power and authority in the kingdom, he actually quotes Matthew 20 and Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Jesus is asked and he responds with this. But Jesus called them to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They have power over people and their great ones exercise, exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Completely 
flipping the idea of power. It is otherworldly. It is of a different kingdom. So the power structure, I actually have an image for you. Jesus takes this pinnacle in the system and he does something to it. He flips it. He says the greatest aspects of authority and power don't come from power lording over somebody else. It actually comes through being a servant and serving. This is important. Instead of Jesus being at the top of a pyramid like a pharaoh, Caesar, or king, Jesus takes himself and becomes a servant. And this is the message of all all over Jesus' teachings and the New Testament. This is where we get those phrases like uh, you hear Christians saying upside down kingdom. This is what we're talking about. Everything's flipped. And this has been the message of all of Colossians. And I want us to see this before we get into our text for today. Colossians 1, Jesus is the preeminent and supreme creator of the universe. And he died for you. He served you by dying for you. Colossians 2, you don't have to be religious and have all these practices added on to ascend to God because he descended to you and you cannot be disqualified because Christ served you in his death and resurrection. The whole message of Paul is getting at that. And then in Colossians 3, as Pastor Barry talked about last week, you can put off the old self that is self-seeking, self-worshipping, self-gratifying, that disregards everyone else. Instead, you can take on a new self that has peace and humility and love, humble hearts and compassion. The whole message of Colossians is pointing out that Jesus has served you. And the, the service of Jesus radically changes us and bids you and I to become servants. The service of Christ gives us assurance that we are reconciled to God. And Paul tells us that our assurance should be practically lived out as servants in every aspect of our lives. All of that to get to our text today. Although we live in a context and a culture that's very different from Paul's day, I think we can derive three places that we can live as servants each day of our lives. Three places. The first place is our home. The second place is where we work. And the third place is our neighborhood or our community. So I'm going to unpack each one. Spend a little more time on the first one because I think there might even be some controversy in our culture today on this. The first place where we can live as servants is at home. Colossians 3, 18 through 21. Wives, submit to your husbands, has this fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wife and do not love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. What we see here is a very radical thing by Paul. He addresses women first. He addresses the wives first, which shows that he's thinking of them first. It's very, very important. He is showing dignity to them in this list of imperatives first. The phrase, as is fitting to the Lord, has great significance because the submission that is being founded now is not like the submission of this world that like they had previously experienced in their culture. Christ loved and served them, which they could trust in. 
They could have trusted now the love of their newly found Christian husband. They could trust it for the first time in their lives because their husbands were to love them and serve them in the same way as Christ. The submission and service of wives to their husbands was not coming from a place of power and dominance, but a new sense of dignity and worth in Christ. A Table Talk article from 2011, was March of 2011, it talked about Colossians 3 and kind of gives us a picture of what the culture was like for women and, and men and slaves and things like that and children in that culture. It says this, in the first century Roman Empire, people were anything but equal. Male property owning citizens ranked highest in the social order, having rights not extended to their wives, children or slaves. The male head of household determined whether or not infants born in the family would live or be left to die of exposure. Slaves were regarded as machines subject wholly to the will of the master of the house, and wives did not fare much better. And while it was not uncommon to find first century Roman husbands who loved, their, loved his wife, such love was not expected or demanded. One commentator even mentioned that the Greek and Roman women were demanded a complete servitude and chastity to their husbands, while there was no stigma for the men to do whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted, to whomever they wanted. So it was actually radical for Paul to call men to love their wives, husbands to love their wives, and dissolve harshness in their speech and behavior. It was radical In fact, Ephesians 5.25 says this, that that husbands were to love their wives as a servant and sacrifice their life for them as Christ did and cause them to be sanctified by God's presence and the word in her life. And the calling the fathers to love their children in a culture where men had the ability to determine if a child lived or died constituted an enormous shift that his authority was not only there to serve his wife, but also his children. Thus, children being set up for success to participate in this newly found servant-minded family, where they could be formed in the same mindset of Christ that is transforming their parents. And what is fascinating to me, I, I studied multiple commentaries. I spent hours looking at commentaries over these passages because I wanted to get this right. It's so interesting that I studied liberal theologians, conservative theologians, both politically and theologically. They all, the ones that I looked at, they all agreed that this passage is talking about submission from this idea of mutual submission, serving one another. This means that the husband is loving and serving the wife and the wife is loving and serving the husband. The children are also being served by their parents and being formed as servants. Mutual submission to each other. One commentator put it this way. Paul does not hold, or Paul does hold that there is divine instituted hierarchy in the order of creation. There are hierarchies in the world. And this is the order, or, and in this order, the place of the wife comes next after the husband. However, this does not suggest here or anywhere else in the scripture that the wife is naturally or spiritually inferior to the husband or vice versa. Equality and submissiveness 
can coexist in human relationships, including the marriage relationship. Jesus and none of the other New Testament writers, they were, they were not striving to destroy every aspect of culture and society or even all hierarchies. Rather, Jesus does something radical. He redefines it. He redeems it. He reimagines it so we can live in our societies and cultures throughout time through a lens of Christ. Jesus understood that changing a society and culture would not come from abolishing or revolting against every institution. Jesus didn't do this in his life. Rather, the mode of change would be through changing the hearts of men and women like you and me. The hierarchy would be redefined and lived out as servants who live and follow Christ. The home and relationship of the husband, wife, and children can now be countercultural through a change of heart that is wholly redefined as being servants of Christ and servants like Christ. So that's the first place we can live out this ser- as servants of Christ, this mindset, this new posture. The first is at home. The second place, and I'm not going to labor over this one as much, is work. At our, where we work, our jobs. Colossians 3, 18 through 41. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Paul was actually addressing the labor force of his day. This is not a condoning of slavery. Onesimus, who was with Paul, he's addressed in this letter at the end of Colossians. Onesimus was a slave, and he calls him a brother in Christ. It's not condoning slavery, but rather it is calling for a newly formed Christian who were slaves, on how they, would, they should serve and live toward their masters, as well as the way in which newly Christian masters should be toward their bondservants and slaves. And praise God, we do not live in a culture of slavery in our current stage of life. Thank God we don't. But we can apply this text to our jobs in our roles and careers, because we work. We're part of a labor force in our country and in our culture. So I have some questions that maybe, are you serving where you work? Are you a servant? Do you have the heart and posture of a servant? Do you honor your boss? Do you speak well of them? Do you talk bad about them? Do, do we work on a different level than others in our company or at our job because we're trying to please the Lord in everything we do. If you are a boss, I keep thinking of Michael Scott in my head, world's best boss, right? <laughs> just like every time I practice, I, could, I, I saw the mug and everything. If you are a boss, do you serve your employees? Do you out-serve them? Do you look out for their interests? Do you lord your position over other people that work under you? Do you try to like exert power over them? 
this one kind of stung, you know, I was a teacher and sometimes there are things you were asked to do as a teacher you didn't want to do. Do you do you do the bare minimum to try to get out of work as quickly as possible? Something I had to really address in my own life. Paul is asserting that everything that we put our hands to is seen by God and he does not forget it. He doesn't. Our work our roles, our positions, they carry weight because we are now marked in service of Christ. We are serving our master in heaven and all of us are under his authority. So the calling is for you to be the best employee or the best boss that you can be and put on the heart of a servant. So we talk about being a servant in our home and being marked as servants in our home. The second place is work. The third place is our neighborhood or our community. Colossians 4, 2 through 6 says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may be open or may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I think Paul is encouraging all of us, you and I, to walk and live with great intention in our life. We are to be intentional. Jesus, as a servant, was very intentional. He puts on a robe or a a towel around his waist and he washes the disciples' feet. He's serving the poor. He's helping people. He goes to a cross and dies intentionally. And our lives should look no different. Paul gives us some orders here on what to do and how to do this. He said we should pray and be thankful with thankfulness at how God is serving you and me. How he's serving us. God is serving us. He's providing for us in ways that we can't imagine or think or even know about. We should be thankful for that. We should pray for open opportunities to share the gospel with anyone in our lives. We should pray for our neighbors, our friends who don't know Christ, for opportunities to share the word. We should make use of our time and walk in wisdom Psalm 19.12 says, So teach us to number our days that we may grow a heart of wisdom. We need to be intentional with our time and how we spend it. And even words and language that we have are to be seasoned with salt. They're to be sweet and savory. That they would serve. They would be service to those that they would hear the sweetness that we live our lives out with. Even those who object to Christianity, they can't object to your, the way you live. They can't object to the way that you speak and the way you carry your life. The life of Christ, or the, as servants of Christ, can be lived out in all of our relationships that we have at home and at work and in our neighborhood. Now, in closing, I, I, wanna, I wasn't going to spend time on this, but it's just so beautiful, I have to. At the end of Colossians verses in chapter 4, 7 through 18, Paul does this extraordinary, beautiful thing at the end of this letter. He gives further instructions to remind the church 
that they are not alone in striving to live as servants of Christ. He actually says, hey, here's a group of people. Here's a list of people who are here to encourage you in the faith, to help you. And it's fascinating who makes the list. He sends Tychius to encourage. Onesimus, as we noted before, who was a slave and a beloved brother in Christ. Aristarchus, Mark, and Justice, who were Jewish Christians. Epaphras was sent to pray for them. Luke, the physician and gospel writer and writer of Acts, was, sent to, was encouraging them. Demas, Nympha, who was a woman who was giving up her house for the church to use. And Paul himself, who was in chains. He lists Jewish people, Roman and Greek people, slaves, women, and even Paul himself. And he views them as equals in their service to Christ. They all had different roles, but he does this beautiful thing. He's like, hey, all these people, this whole barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, we're all one in Christ. He's like, yeah, this is true. Look at these people who are here to encourage you. This mindset as servants is the same for us today. If you are a Christian, if you're at this church or part of this church, we all have different backgrounds and ethnicities, experiences, but we are all one in Christ. We are here to serve one another. We're here to remind each other of our service to Christ. And outside of here, whether we are teachers, full-time moms, lawyers, factory workers, nurses, food servers, students, children, or any other role in life, we can live with the posture of a servant. This is because all of us has been served by Christ and we are his servants. We can serve this world for the advancement of God's kingdom. Now, as we transition to our time of communion, I want to I turn our attention to the actual meal. Actually, Jesus would wash his disciples' feet on his last night on earth. But this meal is intentional and it reminds us that you have been served by Christ. Paul would, Paul would say it this way in Philippians 2, kind of, kind of taking parts of Philippians 2. He said, Jesus did not equate equality or count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. On the night when Jesus died, he took the bread that represented his body and the cup that represented his blood. We serve in our lives now in response to this, to the work of Christ, to the service of Christ. And one day we will take this meal with him as our inheritance and our reward. So if you are not, if you are not a Christian, we ask that you please do not take communion. Please pray and consider how Christ has been a servant and that he is inviting you to put off the old self into a life devoted to service. If you are a Christian, remember as you take and you dip the bread into the cup, you remember that Christ served you and that you can serve him with your life. Let's pray. Father, We thank you for your word. We thank you 
that God, that you sent your son to serve us. We thank, we're thankful that we can now put on the posture of a servant as your word instructs us. Help us to be faithful in this. Areas where we're weak in it, we pray, God, that you would give us strength. Make us aware where we need to grow. Help us put on the new self. New compassionate hearts as servants. That you would be reflected and honor in all that we do. God, work in our hearts today. I pray that you would speak. And if there's someone who does not know you, I pray that you would uh, begin working in their hearts. They would have questions. I pray that they would seek you in that. Bless our time as we end our services. And thank you for the meal we will partake in. In Christ's name we pray.